Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of, the, of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He, has, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, it, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's been many cover-ups in human history, and maybe you can think of them, maybe some conspiracy theories you think of, cover-ups, Area 51, whatever. Uh, the greatest cover-up in human history has to be the satanic blindness placed upon unbelievers that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of God in the face of Christ, so that they can't perceive the worth and value and significance and of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That has got to be the greatest cover-up. That has to be the greatest cover-up in history. 
And a great manifestation of that is the way that this chapter has been redacted, has been hidden away, especially for the Jewish people. In fact, every year when the scriptures are read, the Old Testament scriptures from our perspective, the Hebrew scriptures in Jewish synagogues to this day, as they read through all the Torah and they read through uh, selected portions of the prophets, they come and read Isaiah 52, 1 to 12 on one week. They stop and the next week they pick up their reading in chapter 54, verse 1. They never read Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, 12 in the Jewish synagogues. It is hidden away. It is a cover-up. These are the suppressed scriptures. But why? Well, because this is one of those poignant prophecies in the Bible about Jesus Christ and his suffering, his death as a substitute for sinners, his resurrection, his exaltation, his entire ministry prophesied 700 years before his coming. It's also the confession of a believing Israel in the future that confesses that Jesus as their Messiah in repentance. Currently, Paul, in his writings, says that there's a veil over the Jewish people. Yes, there are some Jews being saved, and yet, on the whole, there's a, a veil, that there's a hardness there, a partial hardening, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. There'll be a mass conversion of the Jews. One Jewish person named Sam Stern, he was engaging in a Bible study with some Christians and uh, becoming interested in, in what they believed. And he, he was meeting with uh, one man who was a Jew who had become a Christian and he was curious to learn why he, he had become a Christian. And, and this man handed him a piece of paper with no chapters, no verses, uh, just the text of our passage and didn't tell him where it was from and he told him to read it and asked him who this was talking about. And Sam just read it and said, well, it sounds like something about Jesus. Jesus is suffering. And he said, you're right. And he says, from the Christian scriptures, something written about Jesus. And he said, you're right, it's about Jesus, but this is from Isaiah, the prophet, in your scriptures. And he was dumbfounded and he thought, I surely have read this before in my reading of Tanakh, but I'm just not familiar with this text. And so he read it and he, again, and it surely was there. So he showed one of his rabbis and he, the rabbi wasn't familiar with the passage. And so it was like, what in the world? And so this began a process for him as the Lord was opening his eyes to the truth of his conversion and eventually became a, mission, eventually became a missionary to his own people until he died in the 80s in, in Brooklyn. An example of the power of this passage. You think, all right, great, but why are we studying this passage on New Year's Day? <laughs> and, uh, well, there's a few reasons. This is kind of the overflow of my study. I'm going to hopefully preach this passage this weekend. And so you're getting the overflow of my study, and I don't even know how much we'll make it through this passage, hopefully a good bit, but we may have to pull a John MacArthur and do like just 
cut it off, you know, sausage link sermon, you know, cut it off here, pick it up next week, but we'll see what happens. But actually, as I was thinking and reflecting on this and, and, and giving you some of my, my study, I thought, I don't know of a better place we could start uh, for the new year. You know, if you think everyone wants to change in the next year, they, they, they're really focused on that. And there's a lot of self-help kind of messages that get preached at us from the world and even some churches. And yet, I think if we really truly want to change, what does the Bible say about change? Well, it says that we are changed as we behold glory, as we behold the glory of Christ. We are converted as we see Christ aright. We are sanctified and changed more into his image as we see him aright. And we will be glorified on that final day when he comes and we see him as he is and we will be made like him. And so change happens as you contemplate and you perceive Christ and his glory rightly. That is the deepest change, the truest change, the most significant change. And so what better passage could we look to than one of the greatest texts in the Old Testament and the scriptures about the person and the work of Christ. So there's one reason. So no better place to occupy our time. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was reading this passage as Philip came alongside the, his, his carriage and, and heard him reading this passage out loud and came up and had a conversation. And the Ethiopian was wondering, who is this passage talking about? Is the prophet, Isaiah, talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Ah, Philip came along and told him who it referred to. That it referred to the servant, someone else, not Isaiah, but to the Lord Jesus who had in fact come and fulfilled this prophecy. Jesus, uh, before this, was on the road to Emmaus and he met two men along the way who were discouraged at the death of the Messiah and, uh, and they, he comes along and he speaks to them after his resurrection and he, he takes them to various passages in the Old Testament showing them that these things had to be fulfilled in this way showing them where he was in the Old Testament. And surely he took them to this passage and probably spent a good deal of time at this, uh, at this portion of scripture. And the result of that time together was that the men said, oh, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? And may it be that one of those two results happened for you. That after Philip, or after the Ethiopian eunuch understood what this passage was saying, he was converted and he was baptized. And after these men understood what this passage was saying in Luke 24, their hearts burned. They were excited. They were passionate. The light of truth caused them to have the heat of passion. And so if you know Christ, may this passage just inflame you this year for your love for Christ. If you don't, maybe this will draw you to him. And so that's my hope and intent as we study this passage together. Like I said, this prophecy is, is very uh, rich. It's like Mount Everest. I mean, you have to climatize as you make your way through it. There's a lot going on in this passage. Let me just give you a few highlights about this passage and how significant it is. It's a, it's a panoramic prophecy. What I mean by that is it covers all of the ministry of the Messiah. It covers his deity, his humanity. It covers his incarnation, his ministry, his rejection, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, uh, the results of his uh, accomplishment of salvation, its application, his reign as king, and all of these things. So much here. It's a precise prophecy. This was given 700 years before Messiah was born. That's incredible. I mean, no one could manufacture a fulfillment of this 
Only Jesus can fulfill this passage. Only he fits with this passage. 700 years. It's a praiseworthy prophecy. I mean, it just instills in us a, a desire to praise God. In, in fact, in chapter 54, verse 1, the first word is sing. <laughs> That's the result. After this passage, it's like, oh, you got to sing about this. You got to praise God for how great this truth is. Not only that, but it's a profound prophecy because it's rich in theology. I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul wrote this. I mean, it, this is incredible. We have the, the doctrine of salvation from so many New Testament authors uh, is derived from this passage. You have the doctrine of expiation, the taking away of our sin, propitiation, the satisfying of God's wrath, the crucifixion, when crucifixion wasn't even a thing. Like they weren't even doing crucifixions and he's predicting the piercing of this one. Uh, imputation. Uh, substitution, reconciliation, restoration, justification, adoption, resurrection, intercession of the high priest on behalf of his people. I mean, all these things are contained within this passage. It is rich in theology, profound. It's a powerful prophecy as well because of its clarity and, for, uh, and because of how long before these events it was predicted. It shows us then the genuineness of Scripture. I mean, what a proof of the reliability of Scripture that the detail of Messiah's ministry and death and resurrection was prophesied so far before it with such specificity. I mean, we believe no myth. We are believing truth. I mean, Isaiah, 700 years before, predicts what we cherish and hold most dear in the work and person of Christ. I mean, this is an incredible proof of the Scripture's genuineness. Isaiah wrote a number of songs in the second half of his book. So in chapter 40 to 66, you have the second half of the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's interesting because it kind of mirrors the division of Old and New Testament. You have 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New, and Isaiah is the same way. 39 books in the Old, and then 27 in the New. And it's very fascinating when you, re I mean, those chapter divisions were put in much later, but just, just conceptually, the way this book breaks down, that's that next second section of the book begins with what? John the Baptist's ministry, a forerunner of the Messiah coming on the scene. How does the gospel begin? How does the New Testament begin? A forerunner coming on the scene for Messiah. And how does the New Testament end? New heavens, new earth. How does Isaiah 65 and 66 end? New heavens, new earth. So there's a lot of parallels there. And within this good news section of Isaiah, you have really focus on deliverance from different aspects of present enemies, of sin and spiritual death, and then of uh, the curse of sin upon the creation. But what you have is these four songs highlighting this servant, this slave of Yahweh, this one who will be the Messiah. And there's four of these. And, and Isaiah 52 to 53 is the fourth of these. And it's the high point. It's the, it's the climax of them. It is the Mount Everest. And what you have is there is a kind of a narrowing down in the second half of Isaiah, the second half of the book, 40 to 66, as you look at its structure, it, it zooms in and it's like it's coming, zooming, zooming, zooming to this passage. And then the passage itself, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, is itself another narrowing. So you have the first section, there's five sections in this, each have three verses, okay? Five sections, three verses in our passage. And so you have the first and fifth sections focus on the exaltation. And then the uh, second and fourth focus on the rejection of the Messiah. And then the middle is the substitution and redemption of the Messiah and what he did. 
And so, you know, you, you don't name a sandwich by the bread or the condiments. You know, you name it by the meat, right? Oh, it's a turkey sandwich or this is, you know, you, you know what I mean. And so you name it by the meat. I couldn't think of more than a turkey sandwich. <laughs> um, but, and so that's what we focus on here. And you don't say, you know, this is a lettuce sandwich. You know, maybe you do if you're, you know, on that diet. But, uh, but the meat of this is in verses four to six. And the focus of that is verse five. This is the central point of Isaiah's message. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. That is the, the nerve center of Isaiah's prophecy. And so it is so powerful, so rich. And what's so amazing is that is the focus of Isaiah's prophecy, and that's the focus of history. All of history culminates at that point when the Messiah dies on the cross. God planned history this way such that a world with sin would bring him the most glory because his son would die for sinners to reconcile them to him so that they would know the fullness of his character in both his wrath against sin and his grace towards deserving sinners of hell but receiving grace and mercy. And so the focal point of history then is the cross where God's glory is manifest the most. Later it's gonna say that he is satisfied. The servant is satisfied in his work. Why? He's satisfied because this brings him the most glory. This brings God the most glory because this point in history is the point when God is shown to receive the most glory. And so this is like a sandwich, and, and it's focused on this point. And this is the focus, substitution. We might say it like this. This passage is about the servant who suffers as the substitute for sinners. There's another feature to this that I want to make you aware of. Not only is this, I said it's complex, because not only is this a prophecy of Isaiah standing 700 years before the cross and looking forward and predicting Messiah's coming and death, you know, at the cross, but it's also, the way he, he sets it up, is it, it's as if my, my, Isaiah's standing here, the cross is here, and Isaiah's writing about a time over here. What Isaiah's doing is he is writing this from the perspective of a generation of Jews in the future, even from our perspective. So it's like, okay, Isaiah's here. If you're, on, if you're listening to the tape, sorry, you can't see this. If Isaiah's here, the cross is here, we're here. Isaiah's talking about a time over here. And it's like he's looking back. It's like a, a generation of Jews who realize that the past generation present at Jesus' first coming got it wrong. And this is their confession as they look back and they say, we esteemed him stricken, spitting of God. We thought he was a blasphemer. We thought he was getting what he deserved, but we were wrong. Surely he bore our griefs. That is the perspective Isaiah is writing from. So not only is it Isaiah looking forward to prophesying Jesus' first coming, but it's this other profound way of showing it in the perspective of the hope of a future generation coming to realize and that fits so well with what Zechariah says about in the future that they will look on him whom they've pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Paul says that when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. And so it's a very hopeful passage as well. And that's why he speaks about most of this passage in the past tense that what he did happened. And there's a sense of which it's, it's speaking to the certainty of that happening, but it's also because it's from this perspective of the future. As they're looking back on the cross, it's already happened long before, and they're saying, 
this happened in the past and we totally misjudged it, but now we see it clearly and rightly because God has opened their eyes to see. That's what's required. For you to see the glory of the Messiah and the glory of the suffering servant, you, your eyes have to be open to this. It, he has to reveal this to you. Because many would look at this and, and see it and, and see nothing of significance. But it's for those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed that they truly see what is here. So, in the time we have, I want to look at five glorious truths about the suffering servant of Yahweh so that you might see and savor him for yourself. Let's begin in these, this first stanza, verses 13 to 15. We'll call this the revelation of the servant. The revelation of the servant. And it begins with God as the speaker. God introduces the Messiah to us. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This word behold grabs our attention Look at this. Pay attention. The first servant song began this way in chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant. A servant is a term that used to refer to Israel as a nation, to be sure, at times, or Isaiah himself, but it can also refer to an individual who represents Israel. And there's, there's clear indications that there's this individual servant who is rescuing Jacob, who's rescuing Israel. So it can't be Israel because this person is an individual who rescues Israel. And so this is not about Isaiah. This is not about Israel. This is about the Emmanuel child. This is about the Messiah. And this servant is one who does the will of his father. And that's what we'll see. He does the will of his father. He accomplishes what the father desires. His will is the same as the sovereign's will. And Jesus said this throughout his ministry. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Some other translations say prosper. And uh, both of these can fit together, actually. The idea behind this word is a success. That's the idea. It's the success of the servant. And really, these first three verses are giving us like a, a panoramic view, a, really an overview, a summary of the Messiah's ministry uh, from beginning to end and saying he is going to be successful, though it looks like he's suffering and doesn't even look like a man and yet that's part of his success but what you see here is that his acting wisely is that he knows what to do to accomplish what he needs to accomplish and so there's the idea of success there and prospering it's like he he has the wisdom that he knows the right thing and how to accomplishment and how to accomplish it and therefore he is going to prosper Alec Motier says, knowing exactly what to do in order to bring about the intended result. It's like succeeding in battle is how this word is sometimes used. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's complete. It's accomplished. Successful. Mission accomplished. We can observe here that what Jesus did as he died on the cross was not to make salvation possible, but to actually accomplish redemption, to actually save sinners, to actually save them. Not to make people save a bull, but to actually save them. He didn't say it is started, it is finished. And so that is what we see, the success of the servant. He knows exactly what to do to prosper. Now, why will the servant be successful? How is that revealed to us? Well, we see the revelation of his divine and human identity. When it says, 
my servant shall be high, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, to be sure, there, there are some who, who see, and I think probably rightly so, that these three are potentially looking to three aspects of Jesus' exaltation, of his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. He shall be high, resurrected. He shall be lifted up, ascended, and shall be exalted at the right hand of the Father. Now, I think that, that has some merit to it, but there's something even more profound going on here because the way Isaiah uses this phrase is exclusively to refer to God. In chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Only God is spoken of in this way. It's high and lifted up. It's used as well in chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Speaking about God. So this servant is God. He's divine. But not only that, he's human. Because, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What he's really getting at here is probably at the the culmination of his suffering, at the, his death, he was so beaten and, and, and so bloodied and so marred that people looked at him and asked the question, is that even a man up there? Because he was so disfigured from that suffering, from bearing the wrath of God and from the physical aspect of it. Who is this person? Not, not, not as he is the servant. Is he a human? He's so marred beyond human semblance. So we see here that this one is God and he is man. He's the God-man mediator. This is how he is revealed to us. We see also the revelation of his disfigured suffering, which we've just looked at. They're appalled at this, astonished at this. He's made unrecognizable. And then we see the revelation of his definite sprinkling. I mean, you read verse 14 and you think, oh, how is he successful? I mean, look at this. But that is part of his success and what he would accomplish. Because verse 15 then says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has been told them they see. There's actually some debate as to whether to translate this as sprinkled or startled. I'm not going to get into that for our time, but I think sprinkled is a good way to take it. And the idea is picking up on that idea of the hyssop branch being dipped in the blood, the priests would do, and they would sprinkle it, showing the application of the uh, sacrifice being made. And so he's saying he will sprinkle, this one will sprinkle many nations. And notice here, this one doesn't only die for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. He's a savior for the Gentiles. Many nations. And he shall sprinkle them. He shall apply his work to many nations. So it's, he's a savior for all without distinction. Jew and Gentile. And then he says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. There's this silencing of the kings and, and presumably those that they represent, their nations. Why? Why are their mouths being stopped? For there's some revelation given to them. That which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. 
it seems as though the, the kind of knowledge that they're getting is not just like factual knowledge, but it's a saving knowledge that they're receiving. Paul actually used this in Romans 15 to speak about how the, the gospel is going to the nations and people were hearing it and be, being saved from all kinds of nations. Remember in Ezekiel 36, speaking of the new covenant, he said, Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. This idea of cleansing through the high priest's work of sprinkling. And so he will atone for the sins of many. This term many is used a number of times. In fact, it gets picked up by Mark and Matthew. In Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Sounds like a servant, right? Servant song. And to give his life a ransom for many. For many. It, it speaks of those whom the Father has given to the Son, the Spirit draws, the Son is giving his life for those, the many. They are those who will be saved. Those are the ones he lays his life down for to purchase. And those are the ones he prays for. We'll see later in the passage. And so, this is the definite sprinkling of the nations. He's a savior not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And, and they understood these things. They, they, can't, they will come to realize these things. This is happening even now. In fact, later in Revelation chapter 5, we read this about this work of the suffering servant. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Really, the idea is out of all these nations. He actually doesn't say every tribe, language, people, and nation. Like, he doesn't... Uh, ransom every tribe, like every person without exception, but he's saying every person without distinction from out of each of these tribes, those who are the many in these groups is the idea. And so this is the great work that he will accomplish. And this is the, the overview that we are given of his ministry and of his, of his success. So you think, well, if this is the way the Gentiles will respond to him, what about the Jews? How did they treat him? How did they respond when he came? And here's where we see the rejection of the servant. The rejection of the servant. In verses 1 to 3. The rejection. The speaker was God in verses 13 to 15 of 52. Now the speaker changes. We hear the voice of Isaiah relating to us the, reflect, uh, uh, the reflection and confession of a future generation of Israel who's come to embrace the Messiah. As they reflect back takes us back to the future, if you will. Look at verse one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Who, who's believed the, the message that we heard? Answer, no one. Virtually no one. The implication is that no one will see the significance of who the Messiah is and what he did apart from revelation. Who, who, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord, obviously, you can think about, that's pretty easy to, to figure out. It's, it's the strength of God. It's the power of God. But it's actually used in Isaiah to refer to God himself. It is a person, the arm of the Lord. And so the Messiah is a title, or sorry, the arm of Yahweh is a title for the Messiah. So you could really say it like this. To whom has the Messiah been revealed? For who he truly is. Apart from regeneration, the effectual call of the Spirit, no one will receive the Messiah and see him aright. 
Remember what Jesus said to Peter when he asked him, who do people say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you are the son of the living God, the Christ. And here's what Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God revealed this to you, Peter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to find in John chapter 1, verse 11, the response that Jesus had when he came. John 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They did not receive him. But it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God revealed this. He's the one who made the difference. When, his, when he came to his own, on the whole, they rejected him. John chapter 12, verse 28. This is very much the same thing. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and will glorify it again. And, and then verse, uh, I wrote down the wrong reference. It's in chapter 12, but we're not going to spend time there. All right, same, it says the same thing. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Romans 10, verse 16, that he came to his own, and they, they didn't receive him. So apart from, this, apart from God, the Spirit, taking the scriptures about Christ and the servant and opening our eyes to give us spiritual sight, we will not appraise Christ rightly. He will not, we will not find him impressive. A merely human assessment of the servant will not lead to a saving knowledge of him. Now, why did they reject his message? What does Isaiah say? They assessed him wrongly. They, they found him, they rejected him because of his unpromising origins. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him, that's before God, so, so the servant grew up before God like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The Messiah did not meet their expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament didn't have expectations of the Messiah. Theirs, though, did not align with what the Old Testament said. They had a skewed view. I mean, here is the Old Testament's expectation of the Messiah, right? He's going to be like this. But they had gone back to what they looked for in kings, like Saul and David, you know, handsome, strong, built, strapping, and, you know, a man of promise. And what Isaiah's saying is, when he come, this one comes on the scene, the servant... He's like a sucker branch. He's like the, the branch that's just taking nutrients away from the tree and is going to do nothing, and you just, it's only good to be chopped off. It's worthless. And the idea here is his, his origins, his growing up. He didn't have any promise for the future. This is not someone who amounts to much in their eyes. Now, what's interesting is that's the human perspective. Now, to those who have eyes to see, this is a reference to Isaiah 11, Verse one, that a, a, a root will spring from the, uh, or sorry, a branch will spring from the root of Jesse. And so though the Davidic line will be chopped down, there will be one who will spring up from that. And so for those who have eyes to see, this is glorious because it's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But for others, from a human perspective, they look at this one and go, oh, there's no promise here. How could this one be a king? How irrelevant, how worthless. And not only that, he's like a, he's like a root in, in dry ground. 
worthless. He's like, he's like in a desert land, springing up. It's good for nothing. In fact, you just trip over this thing. He's just a stumbling block, and you got to pull this thing up. It just gets in your way. Worthless. He's someone to be avoided. And so he had an unpromising origin. He had an uninteresting character. He didn't make a good first impression upon people from the outside. It says he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. You know, most of the time in the pictures, you see like a halo over Jesus. He's glowing. He's wearing different clothes than his, than his apostles and all these things to separate him out. That would not have been the case. He would, you're in a crowd, maybe you wouldn't even have picked him out as the, the one. Ordinary, ordinarily. It doesn't say that he, he was bad looking, but simply he was ordinary looking. There was nothing in him that was going to draw attention to him as a leader and as the one who people would follow. And not only that, he was from nowhere impressive. And he had ordinary parents. In fact, Nazareth, Nazareth, Na, excuse me, Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not even worthy of mention. And then in the New Testament, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he's from nowhere. And then he, he's rejected for his undesirable person. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised is used of Esau despising his birthright. What did that mean? It meant that it was worthless to him. Hey, I'll sell this and give it up for a bowl soup, you know. Uh, it didn't, didn't matter to him. That's what the Messiah was to, to Israel when, when he came. Eh, it's, it's worthless. It's nothing. I'll sell it. I'll trade it. This term for men refers to those in authority, to leaders, so it's most likely referring to the rulers in Israel who do not believe in him, but rejected him. They didn't even want to look at him. He, he was like someone who had been greatly disfigured that sometimes in public, you, you kind of like don't want to draw too much attention that you're looking at them and so that you kind of look away. And that is what he was to them. It's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's not to say that he was like, this was just like his his way about him, his personality. It's because of the griefs he was going to bear. Later in the text, we're going to say, he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows. The prospect of bearing sin that was not his own was a great burden upon him. And thus he was a man of sorrows. And thus not very appealing to them. And it says, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. This word esteemed, it's, just, it's an accounting word. It's like he was a zero to us. I like what Alec Motier says as he describes this word. He says, it's an accounting word, a reckoning up of value. When all that the human eye saw and the human mind apprehended was added up, the result was zero. With this word, Isaiah completes a diagnosis of our human condition, which he has been unobtrusively pursuing throughout these three verses. To see the servant and find no beauty in him reveals the bankruptcy of the human emotions. To be one with those who despise and then reject him exposes the misguidedness of the human will. To appraise him and conclude that he is nothing condemns our minds as corrupted by and participants in our sinfulness. It's like if you could appraise him and say he's a zero, that is just an evidence of your blindness and depravity. But this is the case. Before regeneration, before a new heart, people find Christ to be unimpressive, a little boring. Now, they know they're supposed to say, well, he's significant in history. He's a big figure. We were supposed to know that. 
But for them personally, he's not compelling for their lives to follow. This is the nature of unbelief, not only for Israel, but even today, how people find and appraise the worth and value of Christ. Find him unimpressive. They reject him. But something happens in between verses three and four and the white space is there that changes things for Israel. For those who once did not see the significance of what he did. They're saying, this is how we thought. This is what we thought of him. This is how we appraised him. Paul says, though, we no longer regard Jesus according to the flesh. And something happens in between three and four that makes them no longer regard Christ according to the flesh. They look at the cross with new significance, with, tr- with the true meaning of it. Because God has shined light to cause them to find him glorious and confess him rightly. And here we see the third stanza, and it's the redemption of the servant. The redemption of the servant, in verses four to six. Notice this first word, surely, surely. As we come to the focal point of history and of the prophecy of Isaiah, Here's the confession and recognition of Jesus as the Messiah by Israel. And this is the confession that every person makes when they come to saving faith in Christ. The focus of these three verses are penal substitutionary atonement. Penal really is just penalty substitution. So it's, it's for uh, the penalty our sins deserve. It's a, it's a substitution, meaning that the sacrifice is in the place of the one who is offering it. And then the atonement describes the sacrifice itself as something that makes peace between God and the offerer. Look at verse four. See the substitution aspect. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Surely is a word of shocking realization. What they missed. Surely. Have you had a surely moment with the Lord Jesus? Where once you, you look back and you say, that's how I viewed him, but oh, surely I was wrong. Surely this is what he did. This is the reality that I had suppressed for so long. And that is what they're coming to in this realization. I mean, just think about this. In, in essence, they are condemning the vast majority of their descendants to hell in this surely. It's like saying, you know, when, when someone comes out of a, a, a false religion or a false cult or a false belief system and they come to the saving knowledge of Christ, th- they have this realization that some of their loved ones are not saved, were not saved. They did not understand this. And so they're saying, oh, they didn't get this, but, but we do, we, we see it. This is why Jesus died. This is what the cross meant. We had it wrong. And now they see They're confessing that they had thought that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he was suffering for his own sins. That's what it says in the middle of verse four. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. We thought he was deserving this. We thought it was for his sins. Now, in a sense, they are right that he is smitten of God and he's stricken. But not for his own sins, for another's sins. He's suffering for their sins. And notice this back and forth between he and we, he and we, he and we and our. We see just a number of truths of salvation in these verses just just tightly packed in. Just give a few of them to you. We see expiation here, which means really the taking away of sin, uh, removing sin. When it says that he bore 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is all that, that sin does to us. It, it brings about these negative effects and results in our lives. It, it mars us. It, it, it creates trouble for us. And later in the passage, he'll say that in the end of verse 6, Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laying on of. Now, on the Day of Atonement for Israel in Leviticus 16, there was two animals that were offered. There was, there was the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. The sacrificial goat, and they would kind of cast lots to see which one would be which, and then the one would be killed and sacrificed, and then that blood would be sprinkled on the altar in the Holy of Holies. The other one, they would place their hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess the sins of the nation, and then they would send it out into the wilderness and it would go away. And, and the picture was there, this one is bearing the sins of the people away, taking it away. And, and some think that they, they made sure it like went towards a cliff so it would fall off. I mean, that would be bad news if like the animal somehow finds its way back into the town and shows up the next morning. And it's like, uh-oh, our sins are back. You know, that was not supposed to be the imagery. So sometimes they, we, people think that they actually went and killed it later so it wouldn't come back. But the, the, the idea was that it was to be taken away. And that's this idea here. That Jesus fulfills both. He's the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. He takes away sin. We also see not only expiation, but propitiation, which is the idea of God's wrath being satisfied. The, the just wrath towards sin being dealt with. This is somewhat seen in the idea of how they saw him as stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Even though they were, they were viewing that wrongly as for his own sin, it was true that he was in fact being stricken by God, but not for his own sin, but for theirs. Stricken is used of, in Genesis 12 of God striking uh, the Pharaoh uh, when the Abraham and Sarah situation happened. It's a condemnation. He bore that for us. We also see here the crucifixion in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This idea was wounded, is, is really pierced for our transgressions. This is a specific language. Language that would have been perplexing to Isaiah's hearers because this wasn't really a practice, you would think he was stoned, right? That would be the idea that you would think he was stoned. He was stoned to death for blasphemy. But not that, but he's pierced. And Psalm 22 picks up that his hands and feet and his side will be pierced. They will look on him in the future whom they have pierced, Zechariah says. It wasn't until later that crucifixion would be a, a common way for the Romans even to perfect this and use it. And yet, it all becomes clear later what this is speaking about. There's such precision in this. And those who were hanging on a tree, according to Deuteronomy 21, were thought to be cursed. So this one is bearing the curse of God for sinners. We see here substitution. It's an act of substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. A crush means being like trampled to death. But notice this. Verse 5 and 8, for our transgressions. Verse 5, for our iniquities. Verse 12, bore the sin of many. It's a range of terms that he uses for sin here. Transgressions refers to willful rebellion against God. It's like saying, God, I'm doing this, and I want you to see it. It's like this, this way of, of saying, I know what's wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. A choice was presented. We chose the deliberate path of sin. We wanted to do it. 
uh, transgressions. Our iniquities uh, has this idea, this word has this idea of being bent or twisted uh, out of place. Uh, and it speaks to our perverted or twisted nature that he bears. And then sin is a general word for shortcoming, missing God's standard. And so really, Isaiah uses all the words for, for sin, the main words for sin, to show that this one, this servant, pays for the totality of sin for his people. How thorough his substitution is. Full atonement for the totality of our sin. And what does this bring? Well, it brings then reconciliation. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The idea is that the legal penalty which secures peace. This is the doctrine of reconciliation. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1. We were enemies because of our sin. Now we have peace with God. This wholeness. And that then speaks to the restoration in this next phrase. And with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. This brought about the objective achievement of our total restoration. One writer said, the death of the physician makes the sinner whole. And this restoration goes deep, down into our nature. We have a corrupted nature that must be changed. And that's what he gets at in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's a verse about depravity. It's not talking about just behavior, but about our nature. We are sheep who have strayed, who have gone our own way, done what we wanted. Each of us has gone and done what we wanted. We've pursued self-sovereignty, rejected God. And this is universal, everyone, each one. We behave the way we do because it's our nature, just like it's the nature of a sheep to act like a sheep. You gotta change its nature if you want it to be different. And so it is for us, we were like sheep going our own way. And yet Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laid on him is the idea of it, it, it meets here, it reaches here, it arrives at. He's, the servant is the meeting point of our iniquity. And he removes it from us, restores us through his death, healing our corrupted nature. This is what a true confession looks like. Notice what they're doing. They're saying, they're admitting and acknowledging that they appraised Christ wrongly. We thought about him wrongly. We had him wrong. Not only that, but they rightly acknowledge what God says about their sin. They're saying, this is, what, this is what's true about our sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression. And they acknowledge that, that Christ bore their sin in his body on the tree. It acknowledges not only our sinful attitudes, the ways of thinking, our sinful actions, but it, it also confesses our sinful nature, our depraved nature. It goes down deep in its confession. And so this is the, a true confession here. It's comprehensive of a converted people. And this is the confession not only of a future Israel, but, but of everyone who comes to faith in Christ. Oh, I had him wrong. Surely he has borne my sins. And surely my sins deserve judgment, and yet he took it in my place. This is the redemption of the servant. Oh, what a savior. What a savior we have. Notice also here the righteousness of the servant in verses seven to nine. Let me just summarize this section by saying there's three ways that this speaks to the righteousness of the servant. 
the righteousness of the servant in his trials, in his death, and in his burial. And actually, that's how these three verses go together. Verse 7 speaks to his trials. He had six of them, three Roman and three Jewish. Not in that order, three Jewish, three Roman. Uh, and, and so verse 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so he's on trial. And two things that you see in his trial, if you look at the Gospels, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He was like a, a silent submissive sheep. When they would uh, slaughter sheep, the, the sheep would go willingly. They wouldn't, you know, protest. And that's the image. That it was just silent, submissive, submissive to the shepherd as he goes to being slaughtered or being sheared. And they go unwill, un, unknowingly and unwillingly though, but here's the contrast that though he goes silently and submissively like a sheep, he does so with full knowledge and willingly for his people. And, and the other thing that you see in his trials is that they keep trying to find dirt on him. And yet there's this refrain from so many different sources, they could find nothing of guilt in him. They could find no guilt in him. And so those are the two things, his silence and his sinlessness. And so his trials show his righteousness. He, he didn't open his mouth at all. He went silently. Not only that, but we see it in his death in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. His oppression, the illegal trial, judgment, the verdict, he was taken away, the sentence. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Here's substitution language again. What, the, what they're saying is, though he was led to his death, he was cut off, right? That's a clear reference to death. Uh, Daniel uses it in Daniel 9, 26 of the Messiah being cut off. And though he's killed, no one protested this. No one, no one said, this is wrong. This is, this, is, this is illegal. We're not having a just trial here. Yet they realize he was not dying for his own sin. He was dying for the transgression of his people, those who were his. He was giving his life for them. And so even in his death, he's shown to be the righteous one. It's not his sins that he's dying for. It's the sins of his people. And then finally, his burial testifies to his righteousness. In verse 9, this is kind of a, a feat of providence. This would have been a head scratcher for those who heard this for the first time. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, plural, and with a rich man, singular, in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You think, okay, so Jesus is crucified between two criminals, and so therefore he deserves what kind of death? A righteous person's death? or Sorry, what kind of burial? A righteous person's burial or a criminal's burial? He deserves a criminal's burial because that's how he's being treated. And so what, how would they treat criminals? They'd throw them in the big community dump. They would throw them into a mass grave. That was how he was designated after his death. That was obviously how he would be buried. And yet, that is not what happened. Joseph of Arimathea offers, a rich man, offers his tomb. And it's almost as if the father is saying, He's accomplished the work of redemption. No more need for disgrace. And he gives him a, a tomb for a rich man. And it's almost like a, a kind of a foreshadowing of what's coming, of the father's exaltation of him. And, and it says that he was buried in this way. He was not put with the criminals after his death because he had no sin. He was not a criminal. He was not dying for his own sins, for the sins of his people. He'd done no violence. 
David said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He was the Holy One. So this is the righteousness of the servant. And we made it, so let's do it. The reward of the servant, verses 10 to 12. Oh, there's so much here. All the rivers of this grand passage flow into this final section in verses 10 to 12. It all comes together here. It says in verse 10, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was the eternal plan of God, the decree. And the idea is that it pleased God in the accomplishment of the crushing. That's what he took pleasure in, what it would bring about. He would, he would render his soul as a, a guilt offering, a, as one who would bear and bring restitution for the sins of his people. What are the rewards then for his, his being a guilt offering, giving himself for the will of God? Well, number one, his resurrection. It says it, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How do you see your offspring after you're dead? And Jesus wasn't um, married, didn't have kids, so this isn't talking about a physical offspring, a spiritual offspring, but, but how do you see your offspring? Well, you have to be alive. And then it says he shall prolong his days. And then he's going to execute God's will into the future. The will of Yahweh will prosper in his hands. So he has to be alive. He doesn't use the word resurrection, but it's as clear as day. It's like neon lights. This one is brought back to life again. And then later he's interceding for his people. And he's dividing the, the spoils of war out to his people as this conquering king. And so here is the vindication of his work as he's resurrected. His second reward is an offspring. He has a spiritual seed those for whom he's purchased. Jesus gets every single person that his blood was spilt for. Like if you go into a, a store and you say, I want to buy every TV in this store and you, you, you pay the price, you buy all the TVs, but you walk out and go home with only half of them. Like is that a satisfying experience? No. Have, have you accomplished what you set out to do? No. Christ does not lose any of those for whom his blood is shed. If Christ shed his blood for a person, they're in heaven. They're going to be in heaven. It, you don't have to add your faith to that to make it uh, effective or accomplish it. It's already effective. In fact, it is the death of Christ that grants you faith, that gives you faith. It's not like there's this wide bridge that, that, that goes almost all the way across the, the chasm and then you have to, like, there's, it like, ends before you get to the end. You have to contribute your faith to make the atonement effective. No, the bridge is wide enough for all those for whom he died, and it gets you all the way across. It, it even provides the faith you need. I mean, is unbelief a sin? Yes. Did Christ die for all the sins of his people? Yes, so he dies for unbelief. He purchases even how you will come to faith. And so how glorious. He has an offspring. He purchases them. They are given to him, and he's given family members. This is adoption. The third reward is the right to execute all of God's plans. See this in Revelation 5. Who's worthy to open the scroll? And here's the one who's worthy. He was slain and he purchased people for God. And then the fourth is satisfaction. Oh, he looks at what he accomplished and he is satisfied in those whom he's been given. The Father has given these people to him as a gift. The Spirit will draw them and he has died for them. And he sees the accomplishment of his work. And then we see he justifies them. He, he brings them to a righteous status before God. He is the righteous one who has earned a righteous standing through his obedience to the law. And he then accounts that to, to his people. He makes many accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. There's some question, what is this? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous. There's two ways to take this. By his knowledge may refer to the servant's knowledge of the Father and his will, and he knows how to accomplish salvation, or it could be by the knowledge of him, at which point it would mean by knowing him. By knowing him, you're counted righteous. And I, I, I lean that way. It, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. How do you become righteous? How do you uh, be accounted righteous? You know the servant. You know him savingly. You trust in him completely. And then he has the spoils of victory as his reward. Those who are his, he then grants all things. The meek inherit the earth. All the blessings that he accomplishes, he then divvies out and gives to his people. These many refer to the redeemed, all the redeemed, the inheritance of the Son. And then he's exalted. That's his reward. He's exalted in this way. And why? Why, why all this exaltation? Four reasons that he ends with. Four becauses. Because he poured out his soul to death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors. Because, uh, he bore, because he bore the sin of many. Because he makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's why he's worthy. I mean, this is like Revelation 5. Who can open it? Here's the one. He did it all. He identified with sinners. He died for them. And he, he lives evermore to make intercession for them. And I love how he ends on the intercession of the servant for his people. Now, we pointed out already that the high priest would sprinkle for the people. It's just showing the, the sacrifice. But then there was another action of the high priest, and that was to pray and intercede for the people. And he interceded for the same people that he sprinkled for. And when Jesus gets into his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I am praying not for the world, but for those whom you have given me. He prays, he makes a distinction. Those whom he prays for are those whom he pays for. And so he makes a, a sufficient and efficacious atonement for them, and he ever lives to pray for them, to ensure their salvation. What an encouragement that Christ prays for you. Robert Murray McShane said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that true? Whatever you're going through, if you could just hear, if you could hear Christ in the room, maybe you've heard a parent praying for you before and you, they didn't know you were listening. You could hear Christ praying for you and you wouldn't fear anything. And yet he says this, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Distance makes no difference. Whether he's in the other room or he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he is praying for you, dear Christian, dear believer. Oh, this is the accomplishment. This is the work of the suffering servant. May it be that the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, would be revealed unto you. What is the response to the suffering servant? Depend upon him. Trust in him. Come, all you who would, are weary and heavy laden. He'll say in chapter 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, he who has no money, buy and eat. Come, it's an invitation. Because he has made this accomplishment, it establishes the free offer of the gospel to whoever will believe. If you will believe, you will be saved. Come. And so it's a declaration. Declare this and depend upon this. Chapter 55, and then delight in this. Chapter 54, verse, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have been in labor. Have not been in labor. And so this is the response. We trust him. We depend upon him. We, we delight in him and we declare him to others. What a great truth. What a great savior. The glory of the suffering servant.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious text that we've just scratched the surface. There's so much here, and yet we pray that you would cause our hearts to burn within us as we consider him and what he's accomplished on our behalf. All glory be to Christ. Help us this year to have our hearts focused upon him, delighting in him, declaring him among those whom you give us opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's sing. This is a song we've, maybe we'll make it a tradition.